Hello, NetWomen Uncut. My name is Pinky Gadiali. I'm the founder and CEO of NetWomen, where we inspire, support, and include women from all over the world to get to the top. Our mission is the 50-50 gender split and to close the gender and ethnicity gap. Create equity, celebrate equality. I'm also the CEO and founder of Mindset by Pinky, where I help people overcome imposter syndrome and limiting beliefs through NLP and hypnosis to break the glass ceiling. You can book your discovery call with me by following the link at the end. Every month, we'll be bringing you our latest updates from NetWomen and our community. We'll be chatting about stories we've found particularly newsworthy and giving our opinions on them. We have a variety of speakers joining me every month from the NetWomen community and having those conversations that we don't normally talk about. And today I'm joined by the amazing Elizabeth Ionita, who's based in Quebec in Canada. She is the Net Women Director for Tech and Public Sector in the US and Canada and everywhere. How are you, Elizabeth? Great to have you on. Yes, thank you, Pinky. Um, and thank you for, for bringing me on. Um, I'm very excited for the work we're about to do. So, yes. Me too. This is this is really so needed and so important. And I, it's amazing how serendipitous our meeting was, right? It was a connection through LinkedIn. It's amazing how LinkedIn can give you that, that platform. Uh, well, I'm, I'm happy you mentioned that because I've been just a huge advocate and proponent of, uh, of people leveraging uh, social and leveraging LinkedIn because there's so many opportunities out there and you just never know who you're going to meet or, or connect with. So yeah, serendipitous would be the word. It, I just, you know, it's brilliant. Like it's amazing how you could be on the other side of the world and we just connected um when we met it was like right this is this feels right you know um so yeah really excited yeah so tell us tell the listeners in 30 seconds or less how you got to where you maybe won't do be able to do it in 30 seconds but um yeah just a bit of background on myself uh i am a first generation canadian um my parents uh, came over from Eastern Europe in the early eighties. Um, farmer's daughter, I grew up on a farm, um, pretty traditional, uh, upbringing. So my father, we were a one income house, uh, where my father worked full time and my mom stayed home and raised my two brothers, myself and took care of the farm. And so for me, traditionally, it was, um, kind of what we see, which is traditionally what, you know, the, the, in a, in a, in a normative, uh, couple where, you know, the woman potentially stays home. Maybe she has some jobs around uh, along her life, but I always thought, you know, maybe that could very well be me because, you know, it was a lovely, um, it was a lovely dynamic and something that made sense. But then I got out into the world and I said, you know what, I have such big dreams of, of, doing things and, and building and creating. And long story short, I left, I left the farm. I came to Ottawa to come to university and, you know, it's, I landed in tech after having spent a couple of years in recruitment actually. So my first job out of university was 
in the recruiting world and HR. And while I first started to recruit more technical roles, more like engineers, software developers, QA, um, I then started taking on files for senior sales leadership. And I started recruiting and headhunting for those roles. And as you can imagine, many, if not most, of the candidates that I was recruiting were um, middle-aged white men. There weren't a lot of women candidates that I was, you know, connecting and um, engaging with. And so, you know, a lot of people ask, like, what is the reason why someone goes into sales? Well, number one was I, sh- I can make that money. I can make that type of money, too. So I, I think that kind of inspired me to say, you know, let me get into software sales. And that's when I left recruitment and I went to work for a large company in the HR human capital management space. And so I've spent most of my career in sales, uh, but recently transitioned into the marketing bit, um, doing a lot of work that is crossover and aligning, you know, marketing and sales uh, strategy. And right now, in addition to being part of the NetWomen organization, I also consult with um, early stage companies and companies that are in significant growth modes um, to better align their revenue teams. Brilliant. 30 seconds, I don't think so. <laughs> that's okay that's a, there's a lot there yeah. um, so what's brilliant is how aligned we are with netwomen what you're doing with the tech world and and early stage startups that are you know series a b c mm-hmm. raise yeah. um, which is a great opportunity for them to work on certain strategies mm-hmm. around inclusive leadership and inclusive cultures what have you found in your experience um with regards to corporate culture yeah so i mean in early stage companies for sure you're usually working with like founder founders and folks that are really boots on the ground and at that point it's really about them building something and bring people together. And so it's what I, I don't really see a lack of diversity, let's say, in organizations because it's people that have worked together and people know that in order to build something for the masses, for the people, your audience, your market, they are diverse. So you should have people building who are diverse. And diverse in experience and diverse in perspective. Now, I feel like as a company scales and grows, and as we can imagine, you know, in the last few years, there's been a lot of pressure on uh, especially uh, tech companies to grow, you know, at a 10x plus rate. And when you're moving so fast and you're growing so quickly, you kind of start losing sight of what's really important, which is the people that are building that with you and together. And so I definitely see um, gaps as companies kind of hit that, hit that point of growth where it's like, okay, great. Now we're global or now we're starting to acquire other companies. 
and bringing those companies together and saying, you know, how do we unify and bring it together these people who really believe in the mission, right? Who really believe in the values of the company. And so we talk about values and then obviously we want to talk about culture and what defines like a healthy culture. Um, and I, so I definitely think there are many opportunities for us to collaborate with organizations who are growing and who haven't had the abilities to kind of take a step back and say, okay, are we growing too quickly? Yes, that's never really a problem, but we have to remember that we can't lose sight of what's important. So how do we make sure that we are bringing people in that don't fit our culture? So I'm really a big proponent of not saying like, you know, bringing people in and, and saying like, we want people who can fit in our culture because then you're, you're almost saying like, we want more of the same type of people. We want people to add to the culture, to enhance, to rich, enrich our culture, right? And the more diversity and the more um, we prioritize having different people and different roles and different functions, I ultimately believe that that, that does um, align with corporate strategy, which is growth and revenue and productivity and et cetera. Um, so, yes. I mean, well, I, one of the things that I find very interesting is that when people say they want to hire the best candidate, that is not necessarily the most diverse candidate. And we get into this whole thing of if you look at who you're hiring and who you've hired in the past, do they all look like you? Mm. And it's the question that we often have to ask leaders who think they're being diverse and they think they're being inclusive, but actually their whole leadership team is still homogenous white males. So that is one of the questions that I love to ask leaders who think that they are really diverse and inclusive and go, okay, you've been doing this in the past, but what are you doing now? And that's a really interesting question because what you've been doing in the previous years or before may not be the best way. It might be the way that you do things or this is how we do things around here type scenario. Mm -hmm. How do you, when you talk, I mean, you obviously are, you're consulting on a different level, but if you were to approach leaders and they were looking like this homogenous, you know, upper level, which usually is the case in most tech companies, let's face it, um, what would your approach be? Yeah, I mean, if we kind of take it at a really like basic level, at a, like a very human level, we like the same. Like we we gravitate towards the same. Anything different or anything that is outside of our comfort zone or something that is defined as change, we are first to it. We don't we don't we want to avoid it at all costs. And very much like in you know in sales, right? This has been my life for the last almost decade. You know sales is very much just breaking it down is identifying 
people, teams, companies that are struggling with a problem, with a challenge, with a pain, and you are uniquely equipped to solve that or address that pain and challenge. And the real work begins when we identify, number one, what is the problem? What is the challenge? Number two is aligning the stakeholders, aligning the people, because you can't really you can't really implement change or um, you know bring in a new technology on your own. You have to have consensus and you have to have a team behind it. Someone, people who have shared shared vision, shared objectives. I think when it comes down to um, relying on what we've known and the status quo, which keeps us you know safe and for the most part. Um, on track in the long term, it kind of fails us. Um, but I think when leaders are trying to think about who they want to have within their organizations, who do they want to bring on, or what type of personalities, or maybe they have you know biases because either they, that's their community, their network. I think that what people need to think about is that, and again, we're going to almost like an HR talent retention strategy or perspective where it's like, you have to have built in programs and processes that make it much more seamless for employees across teams to benefit from specific training opportunities or leveling up cross cross training upskilling because a lot of the time the people that you're looking for out there are there beside you are within your company already they just haven't been identified and acknowledged that okay this could be a valuable um, person for this role or whatever in the future and this is why I'm a huge proponent of um, internal mentorship programs, sponsorship programs, aligning um, folks who are more earlier in their career with folks that are kind of mid-stage or, um, you know, either looking to exit, go into whatever consulting, et cetera. Um, Because the opportunities that are available for people inside their own organization are so so much more impactful because again you have folks that have already come in they have that internal domain knowledge expertise they know who's who in the company they know how to navigate they know more importantly who are the people that we're trying to support customers for example and when it comes time to recruit or to um, bring people into specific roles there's that there's that um, that security knowing that you've invested in this person and this person is going to be invested in the company in their um, in their roles moving forward. I think also kind of taking a step back and how do we make even the recruitment process more inclusive? Like, for example, I maybe not so much now because thankfully, you know, companies have changed the way they they write these job descriptions. But a few years back, you know, looking at just the language 
that some of these job descriptions, specifically when it comes to revenue roles like sales, um, where you're supposed to own a number and carry a bag, it's very, it's almost like they don't have everyone in mind when they are writing these job descriptions. Yeah. And like almost like aggressive language, like in sales, right? We want, we want hunters, we want hustlers, we want this, we want that. Um, And obviously there's been studies and, 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 you know, statistics that say, you know, the way you write or um, put out job descriptions, it has an impact on who you attract to those job applications, right? So for example, like, you know, it is maybe just a one pager, but you take a read through a one pager job description and you get a good sense of what the company may or may not be about. And for those lucky enough to have ones that are uh, true and authentic, and that's great. But what happens for the most part is it deters a lot of people from applying for jobs that they would just thrive in and they would be so successful in. But again, um, you know, being, being mindful of, and, and those are other things that are more like tactical, but I think broader level strategy, you have to kind of understand number one, it's important that we find the right fit, the right person that can do this job. Right. Right. And a lot of, I think as far as DEIB is concerned, there's been a lot of backlash where there's a assumption that some people are given opportunities and, and jobs and roles that they might not be qualified for just to simply meet some sort of quota or target, which I think is ridiculous because it all comes down to, are we being inclusive in how we approach different folks and the way we communicate, et cetera? Yeah, and I think also that touching on that point that you've just made about hiring someone that's not qualified for the job. What are your thoughts on that? Because there's a lot of backlash with people saying, oh, you know, they only got the job because they look like that or because they look different. And then, you know, they're not getting it on merit. They're getting it because it's a tick box for, the, you know, it's the buzz thing to do. It's the right, it's a thing to do because it's a tick box exercise. Because uh, DEI is this buzzword. And yeah, that's a, that's a hard question to answer. I mean, I think um, ultimately it comes down to being very honest, you know, with candidates. And I think that it's not about, it's, you know, the HR function, or the HR teams within these companies and the recruitment teams. And let's be honest, a lot of these, um, a lot of these companies outsource their recruiting, right, to third parties. It's just about having a, a, a mission and saying, like, we will not give up. Like, we want to be able to have as many candidates that are qualified for this job. And sometimes it just takes some 
extra steps. It takes some creativity. It takes, you know, maybe going out. And this is why community is so important because a lot of opportunities come from people who know people who are happy to refer people um, who traditionally would not even stumble across a specific job description, let alone your company. Right. So I don't know if I have an answer to that. I think that what's important is that if that if there is a tendency to think that this person has not is not qualified, does not have the experience and has given been given this role, I think that the sooner the employer or the manager or the director can say, you know, I have faith that you can do this work and you are not going to learn everything within this first, whatever, three, six months of onboarding. This is why I really, it's important for me, for you to be honest and, and come to me if you don't know something or you want to commit more time to, you know, learning this and this and being able to give opportunities for learning, for skilling, for these folks, because guess what? Not all jobs teach you how to do the jobs in the onboarding process. A lot of it is self-taught. A lot of it is, you know, navigating externally and learning from others. I think it's just about taking serious the importance of continuous training and development and giving that person the security to know that they are invested in their development and growth. Because again, we don't want to hire people and have them churn, right? We don't want turnover. That does not help us like that. Again, that's, it's costly to the business. It's company to more, it's, it's costly to company morale. And we have to show more, uh, more creative ways to take things like this more seriously and commit more resources to it. Um, because then the more people that we support and the more people that we bring in and say, you know, we're a learning, like there's a, a culture of learning and development here. Not any, no, no one in this company knows everything. And we want to be able to have you be comfortable to, to connect or to send a Slack message to anyone within the company if you have a question. So that is what really kind of sets the tone for what type of culture you have. Because a lot of people, when they come in new, they are so intimidated. They don't want to admit that they don't know what, you know, certain thing or they're in a meeting and they're not sure what to say. I think it takes a very um, emotionally intelligent leader to identify um, when people are feeling vulnerable and to address that not in the sense of making them more vulnerable, but saying, you know what, this is something that we should work on and talk about more. I have, I have faith in you. Like, I, I know we, we want someone like you on this team. And I just think it's kind of boils down to really just it's human to human. It's talking to people. It's caring about what they have to say. It's about them wanting to be valued and acknowledged and for them not to feel weak or, um, not capable in doing the work just because they say, you know, I'm not sure how to do this or 
I'd really appreciate if you showed me or took me through that process again. Um, it's, yeah. it's those cultures I feel that are, are the ones that are, are the ones that are, are setting the precedent of, you know, because again, the more, the more they can invest in their people and, and have those people stay, it's not just about them staying. It's about them becoming ambassadors and advocates for that brand, for that company. And again, we can have another conversation on this in a bit, but I think from a marketing perspective, from a, from a brand perspective, I think employees are strong assets to have. Hmm. They are the ones out there that are promoting the company and, um, you know, making it so that other people kind of perking up their ears and like, okay, what, what is this company about? Like definitely want some of that. So I, I always said employees are your most significant competitive advantage and nothing will change. I, th I believe that. I think that that will always be the case. Absolutely. I think humans are the biggest asset to any organization. And if they are not nurtured, nurtured, valued, appreciated, and given opportunities within the organization, then they're definitely going to leave. Um, how did you feel coming from a sales world of overly, you know, male dominated situation in corporate? Yeah. I've had a lot of feelings about it. <laughs> a lot of lived experiences. And I mean, I'm part of different communities um, and groups that really talk about getting more women in sales, getting more women in tech sales within that enterprise space. And I, I can definitely, I know that teams that have more female sellers are going to be more successful, right? I mean, I don't want to generalize, but for me, being in sales, it wasn't ever about the money, like honestly. And, and people might listen to this and say, yeah, right. But honestly, for me, where I really thrived was being able to work and collaborate and learn and teach and coach people that I worked with within the same company, but then also externally other people. Um, mentoring younger, for example, younger women who are thinking of sales as a career, but don't know anyone within that industry. And so being able to expose this as like a viable uh, career, something that they could do to really support themselves, their families, that was what really was the kind of the icing on the cake. Now, one of the things that I felt early on is that even the, the larger companies still have gaps in terms of how they support specific people in specific roles. And I'll give you an example. In my role with my not this last company, but the one before, um, big. We had IPO'd in 2018. Is that the year I came back from my first maternity leave? Company was growing fast. 
And our, just to give some context, so our average sales cycles were minimum six months, eight months, some were a year plus, especially was working with like some public sector clients. When I got pregnant with my first child, I knew and I was dreading the time that I would have to leave work because in that whole, you know, seven, eight, nine months of my pregnancy, I knew that I was working on opportunities that potentially would not come to a close before I had my baby. And so I mentioned this because a lot of companies fail to implement policies that protect people. And I say people because it's not just women, it's about others, others who might take a leave of absence, for example, to care for an aging parent or someone who might, you know, get a medical diagnosis and have to, you know, leave work on short term or long term disability. All that to say was my problem was that I had been working all these months up until the day I went into labor and there was no policy in place to communicate how I was going to be compensated my commissions after I effectively left. There were no policies or communications in place to say, you're going to have, you're going to have, uh, we're going to grant you, you know, 80% of XYZ if it closes within whatever the first month or a 50% once, you know, two, three months after you've left. Because effectively, these are deals that are revenue. And being in a sales role, I compensated by commission. So for me, having that lack of policy hit me hard because I spent the first three months of my maternity leave in constant communications back and forth with my management, with my payroll, with my HR, to get some sort of clarity and, 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 and um, security knowing that this was going to be paid to me. Now, fast forward, and I have my second child in 2020, and nothing has changed. No processes have been introduced. And I'm not the only one that this has impacted. I've had conversations with many women at this point. And I'm asking myself, why? Why hasn't this been addressed? And then we wonder why women aren't so um, adamant about going into tech sales, especially if you're at the beginning of your career, you're navigating and you're like, well, I don't know if I can do that work because it's too demanding. Or what happens if I want to start a family? Or, you know, what if I'm not given opportunities for growth, knowing that mm, maybe I am going to take some time away from work because right. I'm going to start a family. And so all that to say is, you know, for salespeople, all you have to do to upset them is just like you mess with their money, just like anyone. Don't mess with the money pay me what you owe me, right? And have policies in place to respect and uphold that. And so for me, I did my due diligence. I communicated to the head of, of the sales organization at that point. And I don't even know to this day if anything has changed. I hope, I hope. But all that to say, that is just one example of 
a tactical solution can, that can be implemented if you want to take seriously your um, bringing on diversity within a sales team and not just having an all-male team. And actually, I can't even say that because just recently something happened with a male colleague of mine with regards to his paternity leave. And it's like, it's, it touches us all in one sense or another, it touches us all. And so I really, and this is why I'm really excited to do the work with these companies who maybe just aren't aware. Like I want to give them the benefit of doubt and say, maybe they're just not aware because people aren't really speaking up. And what happens when people don't speak up? They leave. Yeah. And so it's interesting and it's, it's, you know, there's going to be sensitivity around it. Um, but if we want some things to change, like seriously change, then we have to take a hard look of like, what, what are we doing? What aren't we doing right now? Mm. And I, I advocate for more women in tech. I advocate for more women and diversity across leadership, across, you know, people who make are put in place to make big decisions and um i just think that we have to really do the hard work to make sure that those things get to happen yeah um yeah we definitely need to do the hard work everyone needs to do the hard work um we all need to get involved we all need to get on the same page um I there's so much more we need to talk about we just don't have time <laughs> yeah <laughs> I realize it time is running away so before we wrap up just one thing what advice would you give to your younger self mm. um I would say that um the self-doubt, the self-doubt, um, it's just a waste of time. You know, like, I think that as you get older, you get to a point where you're like, you seem more confident, but inside you're still, you're still struggling with that dissonance. You're still struggling with, can I do this? Mm -hmm. And I think like, it's such a waste of energy. It's such a waste of time um, for us to continue to doubt ourselves. Um, the analysis, I think the, the analysis paralysis is a real thing. And I still struggle with that. But I think the number one advice I would say is that when, oh, this is a hard one. Trust your gut when you want, when you feel that there's something that you're seeing or that you're noticing and nobody else is putting up their hand, find it in yourself to just do that right. and be that first person that, you know, breaks yeah. the crowd or the first person that speaks up um, because the minute you do it's not long for everyone else to do the same. Yeah. So, yeah. Powerful. 
Thank you so much, Elizabeth. That has been amazing. Uh, thank you, really thank you. Chatting with you. Um, yeah, look forward to more conversations. That's our episode done. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. We really appreciate your support. Email us if you'd like to feature or if you have any ideas at all at hello at netwomen.co. That's .co, not co.uk. You can subscribe to our newsletter, sponsor us with our mission, create equity, celebrate equality. Let us know what you think. Leave a review, share, tag at netwomenco and find us on LinkedIn and Instagram just by searching netwomen. Head to our website for our latest blogs and updates at netwomen.co and DEI programs on netwomen.us. You can book a discovery call with me at calendly.com slash netwomen. Thank you for listening. Bye.